Hello and welcome to the Imagineer Podcast, your unofficial guide to all things Disney. I'm your host, Matthew Kroll, and you're listening to episode 57 of the Imagineer Podcast. In today's episode, I have the great honor and privilege of chatting with McNair Wilson. For those of you who don't know McNair, well, of course, you're going to get to learn a lot more about him in this podcast episode. He played a key role at Walt Disney Imagineering in the 1980s and early 1990s, working at projects at Epcot, Disney's MGM Studios, now called Disney's Hollywood Studios, of course, Downtown Disney, now called Disney Springs, and other locations around the Disney parks. He had a key role not only in the development and concept work behind some of the attractions that you now know and love, but he also invented the term streetmosphere and had a huge role in helping to develop a lot of the streetmosphere that we know and love at the Disney parks and even in the theme park industry in general all around the world. So in today's episode, we'll talk about his history at Walt Disney Imagineering, his thoughts about creativity and brainstorming. We talk a bit about what it's like to work at Walt Disney Imagineering. He offers some great advice and tips if you're looking to become a Walt Disney Imagineer. And there's a couple of fun stories in there, including how he met Walt Disney himself, worked closely with people like Marty Sklar and Claude Coates, and it was just such a fun discussion that I cannot wait for you to hear. At the end of the show, I'll come back and tell you a little bit more about how you can connect with the Imagineer podcast on all of our social media channels and how you can help to inspire and create the future of this show. So grab some headphones, pull up your favorite armchair, and enjoy this episode of the Imagineer podcast. So as I like to say, I founded Imagineer Podcast and started the show to really pay tribute to the Walt Disney Imagineers, and it is always a pleasure to have the chance to speak with someone who worked at Walt Disney Imagineering. So I'm incredibly excited to be chatting today with McNair Wilson. How are you? Fine. I'm good. (laughs) I'm good, Matthew. Do I call you Matthew or Matt? Either one's fine. I usually go by Matt. Okay. So... I know I gave a, a very brief introduction for you, but uh, ha, ha, what, you know, when people ask what you did at Imagineering, how do you describe what you did? Well, it's interesting. We did a, uh, when I was there, I got there, uh, there were 400 and some Imagineers. When I left eight or nine years later, there were over 2,000. As, and as my boss, Marty Sklar said, look how many people I had to hire to build all your ideas. And I said, well, that's very sweet. He said, it's not half he said it's more than half true uh, <laughs> he was always a big big supporter um, I mean from before I met him he was a big fan and um, and so we, were, we did a, um, a a big promotion to hire new Imagineers and they hired this ad agency and all that stuff and and I, I don't mean to speak ill of those people but that's the direction I was headed in life when I was in college Minneapolis College of Art and Design graphic design so on and as I tell people, I was going to go into adver- advertising and, you know, and be an advertising person until I actually met some. And um, 
and they they were asking us about imagineering what it's like and i i said well we're, we're kind of professional third graders we um we we've traveled a lot read a lot done a lot seen a lot but we're still curious and playful and imaginative and you know the evidence is that the and this is all in my new book the that, that the average kid graduates high school with 70% of their natural curiosity diminished, gone. And, and then parents wonder why their kids go to college and believe all the baloney that they hand out there. And, uh, you know, it's not all baloney, but too much of it is. And, and so uh, when we're talking about, you know, what are, what are we looking for at Imaginary? What do, what do we do? And so we sent around a, um, a memo to everybody and this was pre-email days, it was the 80s, and we said, can you describe in a sentence what it means to be an Imagineer? And so we did this brochure that was this big, it's about this big, but it unfolded like a map. And uh, one side showed literally a timeline of developing a, a project. So it showed concept design and, and, and concept art, and all these different things. So that's the, the left brain story of it. And then on the other side was Herbie Ryman's initial sketch of Sleeping Beauty Castle, surrounded by the best of these quotes that we picked. And we put them on a wall anonymously and picked them thusly. And one of mine that was picked, or mine, the one that I submitted that was picked was, Imagineering is the hardest fun I've ever done. <laughs> That's and awesome. uh, Michael Eisner quoted that in his letter in the, in the, um, in the, um, the, the shareholders um, report, annual report. I heard him quoted in conferences. He says, one of my friends at Imagineering calls it the hardest fun he's ever done, that we, that, that we sit in a in a room and we think and we play and we imagine and we bounce off of each other. And the big shock for me at Imagineering when I got there was there was no formalized method for creativity, for group creating, for what the world calls brainstorming. And that's why when I wrote my book, Hatch, Brainstorming Secrets of the Theme Park Designer, <coughs> I said on the back that <coughs> most brainstorming isn't that brainstorming at all. It's it's playful arguing with snaps on the table. So I said, how do we get rid of the arguing and keep the brainstorming? You know, if you're with your, your team at your marketing company doing brainstorming and you have an idea and the person next to you says, well, I don't have work. Oh, what's that going to cost? That's not brainstorming. Brainstorming would someone be someone saying, yes, and what about this? And adding to it and being creative and playful. So if you were doing concept work, and I was part of people who did concept and design work, um, literally, you'd sit in a room for hours and weeks and months, and I was on teams to do that for Disney MGM Studios from day one. I still have my first sketch from March of 84 of what Hollywood Boulevard might look like. It doesn't look like that now, but it's remarkably similar. We knew that it would be those old buildings. And the, I did a little work with Joe Rohde and the, and the um, Animal Kingdom team when they beeped me one day. Uh, and knowing that I was a church-going Christian, they said, how big is Noah's Ark? And I said, big. <laughs> like, ten stories, like football field and a half. And I'm like, oh, no. And they were imagining it might be a good weenie, the icon, for the middle of the park uh, where um, the Tree of Life is right now. And and um, not, not to go into too much detail, but at a presentation session, Eisner came over to me and said, are we going to get in trouble from church folks if we do Noah's Ark? I said, no, not doing Noah's Ark, because we'll do it tastefully, it'll be amazing, and so on. But two things, it's a real wow, and it would be wasted to have it just sitting there opening day. I think we save it, 
put it off to the side. And two or three years in, we say, now, now landing at, no, at the animal kingdom, there's thunder and lightning, and a, a dove comes in, Noah's Ark, and there it is, dripping. And, and he said, did you just do that? And I said, yeah. But I said, the other thing is, if it's the weenie for the park, if it's the icon for the park, like the castle, like Spaceship Earth, like the Chinese theater, it's on every shopping bag. And now it's Disney's Ark. And people get a little glitchy about that. They shouldn't. Disney but can't. But they will, yeah. But they will. So I said, let's just save it. And he reached over. I said, now, when you do this during the conversation, the project, make sure you tell them you love this idea because I know you do and I do and I don't want to be my fault that it's not there. Um, so Animal Kingdom, um, certainly certainly Paris uh, and all the different guys there, I worked directly with the different. What Tony Baxter did very clever for the Magic Kingdom Paris is he created each land as though it was a full theme park and gave it somebody to be in charge of it. And without consulting with each other, each one of those guys came to me and said, you know, we always have trouble finding kind of places where pop-up shows, bands and different things. So we want to build those in structurally and in terms of facility and environment. Um, but in a way that it, when they're not there, it won't look like it's out of place. So for example, one of my favorites, and I finally got to go there, um, in the middle of Frontierland, there's this place, it's a bunch of rocks, there's a, an old buggy that's kind of off to the side, and in the middle of them is this pad, um, cement pad, that could accommodate, say, a bluegrass group of uh, half a dozen or so players. There's a rock that can open up and they can plug in their instruments and so on and so on, but when they're not there, it just looks like area development, as it should. And so um, uh, it, it was fun just to kind of work with each each area with, with stuff like that, rather than, you know, after it's all built, okay, let's just slap a stage in front of the castle. Right. And they did the very best thing there because they came to me and said, do you have any ideas? How do we do, how do we do a big show in front of the castle without closing the castle? And I said, well, what's the real goal here? And they're like, well, you know, I want to do a show in front of the castle. No, you want to do a show with the castle behind you. Well, what's the difference? So when you take a picture, especially with a big guy like me, you don't take it like this, you take it like this. <laughs> so I said, what if, castle, front, what if the stage was here? So have you been to Paris? I have, Paris? yeah. And so you know that the stage is off to the side. That's right. Below grade, the top row of the audience is at grade with your walk by, and you can then you go down it, and there's 2,000 seats there. When there's no show, it doesn't look wrong. And if you walk by, go, oh, they must do shows here. You've got underground access to staging areas and so on. So those kind of questions to come at it from a theatrical background, because that's that's what my life was, it still is a little bit directing, playwriting, so on, acting, and, and sort of look at it in those in those in those ways. So so a lot of what I did was be kind of an in-house consultant for all things theatrical. And one of the things that Mr. Eisner, one of the things that Michael was real keen on, the Disney MGM studio, which his, was his first park from scratch to opening, was that there would be street theater, because he was a big fan of the street theater at Epcot, which is how I got to Disney on, on my second go-round, was my friends and I had created this company, SAC Theater, S-A-K. We just spelled it that way, so it was our own name. And we started doing Renaissance festivals in uh, 1977. A couple years ago, I had a 40th anniversary the original cast went back and did shows at the Minnesota Renaissance Festival. It was unbelievable. And um, 
because we're all still in touch. None of us are still with the company. The company still exists. If you go to Orlando, it's the SAC Comedy Lab downtown Orlando. They're more of an improv troupe now than street theater. But um, Michael was keen that there would be street theater at, at, at Disney MGM. And I kept looking and looking as we we're designing the studio. And there were, there were things that had a street theater feel to them, but no particular street theater. And one night back at the hotel, I was there with my, my business partner, Herb Hansen, Herbie. We started SAC. And I said, Herbie, look at this Hollywood Boulevard thing. It's the best set in the world. And I've always believed, and Joe Rohde says this a lot, that everybody talks about how much better the rides and attractions are at Disney. And they are. But the real thing that Disney does well is placemaking. That you can walk down Main Street USA with no Dapper Dan singing, without the suffragettes and the mayor, without any band. And it's a place. And you just feel... What a cool place this is. And you can walk, so through the cas- walk through the castle in any place you go. I was just in, um, in June, uh, flew out with some buddies and went to um, Galaxy's Left Edge, as I like to call it. I had, <laughs> I had this hat made, make Batu great again. And it was so funny. It. People went, oh, oh, oh. In fact, one of my Imagineering former colleagues says, you should have made it red because people might think it's a Trump hat. And I wrote to her and I said, and what would be wrong with that? She goes, <laughs> Well, uh, maybe maybe nothing. (laughs) It's great fun. And so, um, anyway, um, on that trip, and it's on the it's it's a banner picture on my Facebook. uh, Louis Lemoyne, one of my one of my favorite former co-workers, and he's a he's a he's a a, um, what do they call him? A legend castle cast member legend. You know, with the dark blue. Yeah, the the legacy cast members. Legacy cast members. And he was totally shocked so on it, but he's perfect that way. Graphic designer, signage. You've seen his work all over the world. And so he and I just by accident wore both wore our black Imagineering polo shirts. And we we were way behind the pack. They're all rushing to you know to get on the Falcon, which we right, did, right. of course. But we're looking at the at, at the details and the signage and the little ropes and the tie-offs and the screws, because we know that's what makes the place the place. Um, I'll be in Florida at Galaxy's Right Edge in October with a, a college class I teach here in Denver. And I'm so eager to see because there are some differences. The color yes. pattern is different. So anyway, so that's that's kind of what I did was pay attention to the possibilities of live elements wherever we could bring some life to these miraculous places we, we designed. And it included, for example, a conversation with Bruce Laval who was the vice president who opened Disney MGM Studios, to help him understand that the show hosts, the drivers on the great movie ride, were, were performance-level cast members. They're not just any old ride operator that we teach a spiel to. These are the equivalent of, as you did, the Kilimanjaro drivers and the Jungle Cruise people. And, you know, it's kind of a, a, a triple feather in your Peter Pan cap as I understand it now from my friend Ian Janosko, because he's one of the cast members who has done all three of those positions. That's tough to do, to do all three of them too. But I agree, it's it's definitely not the same as just operating a ride. You have to have that level of uh, entertainment. So like you really need to act a, a real role outside, yes. of, outside of just the, the role of, of being a... Uh, you know, working in a, in a parking garage for Rock and Roller Coaster. It's, it's not quite the same. In um, fact, we had a, a funny yeah. conversation. We built uh, a mock-up of the, um, whatever it is, the, the, the stairs where you run up and grab the orb and so on in a great movie ride in a warehouse. 
And so I was, you know, testing it and the steam and the whole thing. <clears throat> and and then I would do the uh, the ride operator. And somebody said, we should tape record McNair so they all can learn how to do it. <laughs> and I said, we don't want a hundred little McNairs. <laughs> so just little bits and pieces of it. Because if they all start to copy me, I did one day my buddy um, came in to me and he says, I got a 23-page script I got to turn in tomorrow to Randy Bright, who was vice president of creative. And it's a new script for the Mark Twain Riverboat. I don't want to just give it to him, read it. Not that he's an idiot, but have you got time to do a click track later, which is just a test recording? I said, sure, Let's. we did it the next day. And we did it like one take. And and I think we couldn't have done it in one take if I knew it was going to get used. Um, if I thought they liked it, then we'll re-record it and do it, do it well. And so we're there, man, welcome aboard the Mark Twain, queen of the riverboats, as we journey down the rivers of America. So I, would, I forgot about that. Randy got so excited about it, we kept it. <laughs> And so I would forget about it, and I'd be in Disneyland, and Mark Twain would be coming by, and I'd hear me on the boat. I'd go, oh, yeah, that is me. <laughs> so I'd get on the boat, give the guys my Imagineering card. Oh, so great to meet you. And, and it, it, it bothered me that as they were pulling up to the dock and my loop ended, then these young college kids, meaning nothing but good, would get on and say, now as we pull up to the dock. So I got a hold of their supervisor, and I said, I got an idea. Uh, what if we have the same writer who did that script write a series of choices and scripts that these guys can say as though they are Mark Twain, as though they are the young riverboat boy helping out? Just be themselves, you know, not try to be me because they're never going to sound like me and it's going to sound. And so we did that. And it was such. And I think that's one of the reasons it lasted seven years. I was told by a lot of different people that a voice like that, they redo and, uh, and, and, and and so it just it was those kind of things to find um, opportunities to make the live parts of Disney better or to even take the parts that weren't live, live like the riverboat captain and and make them and make them feel that way. And one of the things I do is I always kind of halt when I get and as we come around here, there's there's a Norland Square, Paris of the rest, Western Frontier. Look at it, would you? My, my. <laughs> You know, and just throw those little things or, or breaths or coughs or little little pauses uh, that if you just read the script, no matter how well you read it, it sounds like you're reading a script. And that always right. sounds. Yeah, weird. that's so true. That's so true. Um, <clears throat> so you, you you mentioned a lot, <laughs> which I definitely want to cover. Um, Sorry. <laughs> no, no, that's it's great. I, I, I already have everything kind of laid out in my head. But uh, but to go back a little bit, so I know you, you you formed that company, SAC, and then you started out technically at Walt Disney Imagineering as a consultant, if I understand it, rather yes. than it took a while. So what was that period like? What are the projects that you worked on initially with Walt Disney Imagineering? Well, let, let me just uh, explain. SAC, we were doing 30 Renaissance festivals a year. And sometimes we'd have a troop of six or eight people at four festivals simultaneously doing our audience participation street shows. And um, Disney saw us, discovered us. They had looked at several other groups, loved us immediately. And Peter Blaustein, who was the head of entertainment for Epcot, liked us. He, was, he, he, he wasn't worried about the fact that we were touching guests and bringing them out of the audience and being a little bit, um, being sarcastic. And some of our humor what, wasn't adult. We said powder blue. And we never, ever got a, a guest complaint about our humor being dirty because it wasn't. It wasn't. We said we're the family act at the Renaissance Festivals and we'll be the same at, at Disney. We were hired, 10 of us, to do 10. We always had three actors out. We called them sactors. 
um, to be in Italy, 10 shows a day for the opening three months of, of Disney. That's all it was going to be. The weekend before Epcot opened, October 1st, Friday, October 1st, they had four nights of cast parties. Our crowds were a thousand people each show because cast members were like, who are these guys? <laughs> they must just be here for the special cast member night because they're not going to let these guys do this for guests, are they? <laughs> sure enough, they did. Within a week, the comments from guests were so strong that they said, do you have more people? We said, yeah. That was October 1st. By Thanksgiving, we had added a troop to the United Kingdom, bumped it up to 12 shows a day in both places. We ended up doing year-to-year contracts. We eventually were in five different places at Epcot, three in Future World. Um, and that was our first meeting with Imagineers. And it was, as a matter of fact, it was Bob Weiss, now president of Imagineering, right. and the aforementioned Randy Bright. And they said, you know, we love what you guys do, and we've noticed that Future World is kind of boring. We said, now, did you notice that on your own, or did you just talk to guests? <laughs> And they said, I'm wondering if you guys could, could come up with stuff. So we came up with three different acts. So by 1984-85, SAC was producing literally 45 performances a day with five different areas of, of Epcot Center. Wow. And that's when they said, we'd like you to come out to Imagineering for a week and talk to us. And our very first day, we sat in a room with 40 of what I call the chief pinheads, the inner sanctum of the creative, 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 creative. And it's the people whose names everybody would know if we said them. It was Joe Lance Cicero and Tony, Tony Baxter, and of course, Bob Weiss, the Kirk brothers, my favorite knuckleheads, who did Living Seas and, and all that, uh, which grew out of a project I helmed for Long Beach, which was going to be the, the Living Seas there. And... Um, and they and what one of the very first questions is what's it like to work at Disney doing what you do, and I said well I finally figured out talking to some operation guys what the fa- what their perfect theme park would be and that would be a large air conditioned building that's empty but has a turnstile and somebody taking money at it, <laughs> and they just screamed and I didn't realize there had been this ongoing kind of battle and rift between the operations guys and the design imaginary guys. And, uh, you know, it was people like Marty that softened the, the in-betweens and stuff. And so I made it a kind of a personal goal in some of the early meetings that I had that I was going to be Dick Nunes' friend. He was head of all theme parks at the time. And he was kind of a rough and tumble guy. But underneath was a guy who wanted people to have a great experience. Damn it. You know, we're going to do whatever we effing can to make that happen. You know, and I, <laughs> It's not the way I would describe it. <laughs> And so our very first week out there was just looking at a lot of different things. So Typhoon Lagoon, uh, they were just beginning to think about putting some nightclubs at, at Disney World Shopping Village. And the, the, the thought at that time was just take their least producing stores and transform them. They had a jazz club then that was outstanding. I wish they would have kept that because you kind of walked in and down all the steps. And, oh, so good. Um, and so they, they struck a deal with us. Uh, that we would come out once a month for a week, two of us, Herbie and I, and and the the, the WDI overhead would pay for it. So any any project, any team, any group of people could just say, "Can we get a couple hours of of SAC's time?" And so because we were the two of the three executive directors of SAC, we couldn't be away twenty five percent of the year. Yeah. So what we did was Herb would go one month and take somebody from SAC that we knew would fit into that. Thing, because we'd spread out, we wouldn't hang together. And then I'd go the next month, and the third month we'd go together. So in a three-month span, I would be there th- twice. Well, it was very early, and they said, and if we don't have stuff for you, your your 
you're willing to explore other things. So Herbie was off talking to Knott's Berry Farm and Universal and all kinds of other people. I just hung in there and, and talked because my philosophy is like Typhoon Lagoon. There are no, there are no, nor have there ever been live characters at Typhoon Lagoon. But we designed some and it, and it informed the way some of the facilities were designed for that. Because what if you had a guy there? Imagine, for example, like Sid Kawenga that had the one-of-a-kind shop in Hollywood Boulevard. Right. We had a Sid. And when they said Sid Kawenga's one-of-a-kind shop, they didn't think there would be a Sid. Because that's before I said to Herbie, I said, what if this street, Hollywood Boulevard, had a whole bunch of characters that were the citizens of Hollywood? And I'd looked at Universal. They had Charlie Chaplin and Lucille Ball. and all Those people are dead. And guests would walk right by them and say, oh, there's somebody pretending to be a dead person. And 90% and of the people wouldn't talk to him. A few people would go, can we have a picture? Thank you. And they'd move on. Yeah. Never knowing that these actors had really worked on impersonations and story background and life story and so on. And, and plus there's a, a, a lawyer in Hollywood who makes you pay for all those because he contacts the nearest living relatives. So, so I said, what if they're just generic characters? And I noticed at Epcot with Dreamfinder. But a kid would come up and talk to Dreamfinder and have a great time. And then a couple of days later, he'd be back and he'd say, hi, remember me? Well, Dreamfinder wouldn't remember him because when he met Dreamfinder before, it was Steve Taylor. Now it's somebody else, Ron, you know. And Ron didn't remember him. And so with, with that kind of stuff, I said, okay, we'll have a gossip columnist. We'll have two of them. They have their own name, their own look, their own style. And when my friend Susie Marshall, who just had a birthday, who I did hoop do review with, when Susie Marshall's out there doing her uh, gossip columnist, you'll know, oh, that's her. And if it's the other one, you'll say, oh, that's not the other one. In fact, one of my favorite things that really put Streetmosphere over the top, first of all, Eisner loved it when I did the presentation. I had a cartoon for each character. I acted them out. And I said, they were out there three, four, five at a time interacting with guests. He said, they do little shows? I said, no. He says, the street theater is atmosphere characters? I said, well, it's kind of both. It's kind of streetmosphere. Right. <laughs> he said, is that your word? I said, yes, it is, and I'll license it to you. And Marty says, we'll make, he says, Marty says, I'm his agent. We'll make you a good deal. <laughs> um, and now that word, streetmosphere, I see it. It's used at Six Flags. It's used all over the theme park industry. That's the because, perfect word for it. Well, right away, you know what it is. And, and, and so uh, what I didn't know was during our soft opening, Michael, I, I knew that he had been coming through. Well, we'd been rehearsing in the morning. They let in the park. They let guests come for soft opening in the afternoon. So Street Mansfield wasn't there. So Eisner was coming through with himself and one or two or three of his boys. and never saw Street Mansfield. And he told Marty on the way home on a plane one time, this was before the park opened, he says, you know, the Street Mansfield thing, I don't think it's working out. I never see it. So on. So Marty says, hey, just back off, blah, blah, blah. And I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. Eric Jacobson, my good friend Eric Jacobson, show producer of Great Movie Ride, he has every three months for the last three or four years had an update with the top brass about the Great Movie Ride. Here's the latest this, here's the latest that. Well, I was in one of those performing, showing them how the thing would work. I said, I did one presentation two or three years ago, straight this year. Eric said, love it, do it. We did a, we did a, a 10 city tour. We hired 33 actors, yada, yada, yada. It's the same tour that we hired the Comedy Warehouse and Adventures Club cast. And then we did horse trading, the three of us. Uh, the directors. I said, I haven't had my day in the sun to bring the executives through and say, here it is. I want that. And he and Bob Weiss, Bob Weiss was in charge of Disney. He said, you're right. I had for almost an hour on Hollywood Boulevard, Marty Sklar, Bruce Laval, who ran the park, 
Bob Weiss, uh, two of my three directors, um, Michael Eisner, Jeffrey Kanselberg, and Frank Wells. Holy cow. <laughs> Somebody figured out later that hour must have cost the company, you know, four, three quarters of a million dollars. <laughs> I, I don't know what their rates are, but I was certainly well. It's probably well, close I, to that, yeah. <laughs> well, what I told him, I said, now, guys, what you're going to see is kind of a, a greatest hits. You're going to see all the characters moving through. But I said, on any given day, any given moment, you might see three or four of them. On crossover time or during the three o'clock parade, you might see six or eight or ten of them, so on. But you're going to see them all. And the three Keystone cops came out, and I found these two guys in Buffalo, New York, the Vote Brothers. One of them gets up and audition to audition, and he's gorgeous, and he sings, and he's hilarious, and he's giant. He makes me look petite. He sits down. I look at my notes. I hire him. Look up. He's still there. I said, I just talked to you. He said, No, that was my brother. Identical twins. <laughs> And I said, do you guys get along? And they said, sure, why? I said, because it doesn't do me any good to hire you if you can't work together. If you work one shift and he works another shift, I get nothing for it. Right, right. The value is you two together. Well, they're loving all this. Katzenberg grabs me and says, yeah, but what about, he said, this is hilarious. Big crowd of people watching. Eisner's loving it. What about this? And he points to, back to my friend, Susie Marshall, who I did hoop to do with for years. And I told her, I said, we're going to work together. I said, She's sitting on a bus stop with a little maybe five-year-old girl asking her about her latest movie and taking notes. Now tell me. And, um, and the girl said, well, yes, my new movie is about a princess. And so I said, cross the street and see her mom and dad in tears filming this. And Jeffrey says, what's that costing us? What's that? One actor and one kid. I said, Jeffrey, and we're like 10 feet away. I said, Jeffrey, that little girl's going to go away from a week at Disney World. She's going to have two stories for her friends. She met Minnie Mouse, and a lady interviewed her for a Hollywood magazine. <laughs> he says, I like that. Well, I didn't realize Eisner had walked up behind us. Now, Katzenberg is small. Eisner's 6'3". Yeah. And, and he hits Katzenberg in the show. He says, you get it? You get it? She says, I got it. I like it. I got it. <laughs> Were it not for me insisting on that meeting, Street atmosphere may not be there all these years later. Now, they do shows now, not my cup of tea, because it's a whole different thing. Yeah, uh, They tend to not interact in their characters with the guests as much as I would like them to, but it's still there. And I told the cast first rehearsal, I said, if this thing is here a year from now, it wouldn't be surprising. Five or ten years from now, it's because you guys took a great idea and made it fabulous. It's up to you. The Streetmosphere at, at uh, Hollywood Studios and MGM Studios lasted for a long time. And I honestly, of all the attractions at, at that park, and sure, I loved Rock and Roller Coaster and Tower of Terror and all the e-tickets, but I really appreciated hey, the Streetmosphere. Don't skim over my Tower of Terror. Well, I will be talking about. All right, let's let's talk about Tower of Terror. <laughs> yeah, Streetmosphere. They've 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 all but gutted it. They've, they've still got some things here and there, but it's too bad. But what are you going to do? Yeah. Well, let's go down Sunset Boulevard and talk about Tower of Terror. <laughs> well, we knew when Disney MGM opened it that it was going to be too small opening day. We had cut a couple of attractions. Um, and one, one of the attractions we cut was an impetus for me coming up with Streetmosphere. It wasn't like Streetmosphere, but it was a, it was a, um, uh, a stunt show of the making of a silent movie. And the whole thing was a... Uh, this stagehand who kind of got in the way and they're all ready to go and he does something he shouldn't do and the whole thing collapses. <laughs> That's based on an old Peter Sellers movie, The Party, where he's this extra in a movie in India and his sandal is is loose and he's looking for a place to put his foot up to tie a sandal and they've got up on the hill of this 
this fort that they're going to explode, and he puts his foot on the plunger, and the director's like this, and they've got six cameras, ready? And he puts his foot on there, boom, the thing blows up. Well, that was one of the things we cut. And that would have been over where Backlot Express is. Got it. Which, is, which was another thing that was designed on, literally on 60 napkins over lunch with three people. <laughs> and it was hilarious. But, um, so we knew opening day, we, we needed to expand the park. So we'd already figured out what that would be, where it would be, and we knew we needed a weenie. Well, there's some, one group of guys came up with, with Rock and Roller Coaster, which is a great ride, but it's not an icon. It's a box. Right. You know, the car upside down out front is a nice, you know, entrance device and so on. And so Marty said, get your knuckleheads together and come up with something. And we had designed a ride based on the movie Airplane. Do you like Gladiator movie, son? That movie. That everybody liked, but we didn't ever build it. So Michael Eisner called Marty one day and said, have McNair get his team together from, from that process. And I've got somebody I want them to work with. So we're sitting in Marty's conference room, not a big place. And and Marty uh, Michael Watt is well, who's he? He's coming over with a friend of his. He wants to, and I said, "Who?" I said, "I have no idea. It could be anybody." Walks in with Mel Brooks. <laughs> wow. And this is the place when I tell the story in workshops. You'll say, "The Mel Brooks." I say, "Yeah, the Mel Brooks, <laughs> who has a chain of dry cleaners in Torrance, California." Of course, of course. Yes, the young Frankenstein Mel Brooks, blazing saddles, yada yada, and. Turns out he's a huge Disneyland fan, and he and his son Max go there a lot, a lot, a lot. So Michael's idea: let's do the something, the Mel Brooks something, something, something attraction. What is that? Who knows? And he said, "What do you got in mind?" And it was funny. I always had a sport coat or a safari jacket on because I had pockets full of felt pens and so. Because you don't want to walk around the office carrying a briefcase. Right, right. And I said, "Do we call you Mel? Do we call you Mr. Brooks?" He said, "Call me Mel." And I turned to the team. I said, "Team." Mel. From then on, every meeting we were in with him, I said, I have a question for Mel. And he loved it. <laughs> and I said, and he said, now what about you? What do I, what do I, what do I call you? And I said, oh, you're going to have to call me Mr. Wilson. So <laughs> we did. We did. Great fun. So we rescreened all his movies, including Spaceballs, which we agreed, and this is going to upset some people, I'm sorry, but this is what Imagineers, who are very smart people, decided. <laughs> Spaceballs is the worst movie ever made. And a friend of mine is actually in it, and he said it was the worst experience of his Hollywood career. Wow. Jim J. Bullock. He said they were, Mel was handwriting the script while we were filming the movie. Wow. Finishing it. And so we said, Mel, you know, the, the thing is, Universal did the Disneyland of movies. In other words, rides where you experience the movie's story, as we did with Snow White and Pinocchio and so on at Disneyland in the early days. What we made a, dis a distinction at Disney uh, MGM Studios was it's behind the scenes. So when you come to the Munchkin Village, if you keep your eyes here, you're in the Munchkin Village. But if you look here, you don't see the sky as you would in the big room in, in Pirates of the Caribbean. You see the backdrop tied to the rafters and lights and so on. So it's the behind the scenes, the how-to. Everything was the making of, you know. Very few places, I think the Nostradamus, when you go go through the Alien and Sigourney Weaver, I think there you've got a what they call a closed, enclosed Yeah, set. that's right, it was. Yeah, so, but I think that was the only space in, in that, that ride where we did that, um, in that attraction. And you should, I, I wish I still had a picture of the storyboard of all the movies we wanted to do. We just couldn't figure out how to make Citizen Kane work, in a, you know, let's see, <laughs> I mean, there's so many things to choose from, but it should have been in there. Anyway, um, 
But there are 300 movie references between that and the closing film and all that stuff. Crazy. Anyway, we, we said, um, we would like to use, we're not going to do one of your films as much as we'd love to do flatulent cowboys of the old West. We don't think that's a long enough story. Right. <laughs> he says, can you do to smell? And I said, me personally, of course. He said, no, can we reproduce it? I said, have you smelled the burning wood and pirates? He said, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, and we, but we'd like to use young Frankenstein as our muse, our inspiration, funny and scary. He said, you guys do scary, I'll do funny. A couple days later, we were doing something, we were being funny. He says, you know, you guys are pretty good. You can be funny, you can do funny too. <laughs> he wasn't being mean, he just, you know, get, yeah, was getting course. to know us. But all kinds of ideas. I was simultaneously working on a team that was coming up with a brand new high-end hotel that was going to sit right at the front entrance to the Disney M Studios. If you look at an aerial photo where Tower of Terror is, imagine from Tower of Terror back to the water, nuking Phantasmic Amphitheater, which would be my choice. Don't don't get me started. <laughs> I uh, won't. But the idea was we have a, a, a higher echelon of clientele that when they check into the Grand Floridian or one of the lodges, if there was a nicer room than the one than the nicest room just gave them, they will take that room. Not to show off, but just that's who they are, that's their lifestyle. We said, let's build a hotel for those people. It would be all suites, um, 24-hour valet. So if you wanted fettuccine at 3 in the morning and you wanted your right shoes shined at 7, your left shoes shined at 10, 15, all of those would be available to you around the clock. Said, so let's build that hotel, make it an old world Hollywood Art Deco hotel. We were calling it the Hollywood Tower Hotel because there is such a place. And I was on the team. One, I, I put together this day of us going around Hollywood, looking at all the great Art Deco landmarks. But also, we were building a do it yourself 24 hour um, scavenger hunt or mystery tour that there would be clues built into like the signs on the telling you what bush it is or at one point you'd get a clue from the bellman doesn't matter what night of time of day it was so on and so on so on and And i said you know mel i said we're building this really high-end old hollywood hotel what if one end of that was the original hollywood tower hotel and it's now deserted or haunted or something he says like what so we just went around the table the next time. And I brought in a little one of those ring bell for services. And one at a time, you'd be telling it. Somebody would ring the bell, and then we'd go to the next person. We're telling what goes on in this old hotel. I said, well, borrowing from Madeline Lingo, it was a dark and stormy night. Da, 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 da. Round, round, round. And you, the elevator doesn't work. So you go down to the steam room, and you get the service elevator. And the value of that, is, Mel said, what's the difference? I said, well, there'd be a chain on the set of a door so you could see each floor as you went by, and you're going up and see this and this and this and this. And then somebody says, and you get to the top, and the elevator stops. And it shakes a little bit, and it comes out of the shaft and goes down the hall. And we all <laughs> laugh. And Mel grabbed me and said, we could do that? I said, well, I know a guy. <laughs> said, you know a guy? I said, his name is Jack. He was head engineer on Space Mountain. He could figure it out. That day, I went to lunch. I found four engineers. Sat down with them, table for four, and me bunch of napkins, and I had a salt shaker. And they said, so Mel Brooks is really here. Not a big surprise. I mean, you know, Cameron was there a lot, Jim Henson, you name it. Pee Wee Herman came to record Star Tour Salt. And, and I said, and you go up, you go up, and at one point, it shakes and shimmies, and it comes out of the elevator and goes down the hall. And he was working on his sandwich, and he goes, then what happens? Which is what Walt used to always say. Right. And he likes 
And then what happens? Is that it? And I said, we can do that? He said, sure. So the guy doesn't explain it. He said, well, it would probably be a separate thing. It would be a thing all by itself. So there's a track here, and then there's a track here. And you probably wouldn't want to see the track there. So whether it's carpet or something, we'd hide the track. And maybe we use, like we do in World of Motion, where it's a universe of energy, whatever it was. Yeah, universe of energy, where it's just a little you know, copper wire, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, great. He said, how are you going to get them back down? I said, I didn't know I could get them out of the shaft. <laughs> I didn't think that far. <laughs> He sa- I said, well, I'll tell you what I'd like to do. I'd like to do a Roadrunner. He said, oh, great, a delayed drop. And I, and I said, you know, when Coyote and Roadrunner are going, Roadrunner can go off the cliff, no problem, because he's a bird. Coyote goes off the cliff, thinks for a minute, and then he's gone. And I dropped the salt, <laughs> dropped the salt shaker. He said, I like it. How tall is this thing? I said, it's going to be a very expensive hotel, maybe six, eight stories. He said, that's not scary. I said, 10? He hit me on the shoulder. He said, come on, theme park boy, think. <laughs> And I'm thinking, Hollywood Horror Hotel. And Mel Brooks would say, the Mel Brooks Hollywood Horror Hotel. Say horror slowly, boys, or it's not a family ride anymore. That's right. <laughs> so I nicknamed it Hotel Mel. In fact, I think if you, to this day, if you Google Hotel Mel Disney, some of that stuff will come up. Um, and, and, and so um, so he said, thanks, dear part. So I'm thinking, Hollywood Horror to Horror Scary. Th- 13 stories. He said, that's the answer. And then, he, then one of the guys said, can we do 13 stories? I think you know that at Disney World, 200 feet is the max we can do a man-made structure without then having to do a, a whole big The red beacon radar light. Yeah. light and, you know, you don't want to put that in the... So I think the castle, Sleeping Beauty ca- Cinderella Castle is 180... I think it's 188 or 180, somewhere in that range, yeah. And they said, tell you what, we'll make it as tall as we can without the thing. Tower of Terror Disney World is 189 feet. And they painted it to look like 13 stories. But at 189 feet, that's an 18, 19 story building, if you figure. So, but we'll paint it to look like 13 stories. Right, right. And they were building Everest. Joe Rody's standing there, my ex friend Joe Rody. <laughs> and he says to one of the Rockwork guys, How tall is this thing? He said it's like 100, 180 feet, maybe 189, almost almost as tall as, as the Tower of Terror. And he's thinking, hmm. Goes up there with some guys. Now, next time you're at Disney World, you look. Here's the mountain. Right at the very top of the, the top, of, there's this little thing that doesn't belong. That they went up with some plaster and some stuff and added six inches. Just the top Tower just, of Terror. <laughs> just top. So one of these days, I'm going to sneak in. And put a weather vane or something on top of <laughs> nine inches ten. on top. Yeah, <laughs> make it one hundred ninety feet. But uh, so that that's that's how it came to be. The, the sad thing about it is that when they did Hollywood, they didn't do the one thing that makes the ride unique, and that is coming out of the shaft and going down the hall. So when people say, "What do you think about the ch- changeover to Guardians of the Galaxy?" It doesn't bother me because it never had that one piece that made it. You know, I mean, imagine Peter Pan without the ships flying. Yeah. Other ships, but they're on the ground. We really couldn't make them fly. <laughs> really? Claude Coates figured that out in 1954. That's I mean, right. it's still, the, still my favorite ride in all the parks. So what was the question? I think the question was about Tower of Terror and how it came to be. And you, you pretty much explained that. <laughs> yeah. When we showed it to Eisner, he said, I love it. I'll take four of them. Marty Squire said four. He said, well, here probably California somewhere, and then Tokyo's going to want it because it's anything great, they want one, and they're going to want a bigger one, and and then Paris. And when I was in Paris, they were just digging the hole. 
for Tower of Terror. So I've only written two of them. And then, of course, Tokyo, they did a completely different backstory because of Twilight Zone. And, and the thing sat. The thing didn't get built for the longest time because it had to be attached to the hotel. And then somebody dug out the rough plans and said, look at this thing's a monster. We don't need the real hotel. All by itself, it looks like a big old hotel. So, boom, then the ball went rolling. Mel was long gone. I was gone. And and so they came up with the, the Twilight Zone Tower of Terror hoopla. The, the, the only disappointment for me when I go through, because I love the art direction, is that I was going to have every 20 minutes or so there'd be another lightning bolt and the place would come to life. Oh. And a bellman would, would run through with luggage or another guy would come through with a with a silver platter. Say, and, you know, and we could tell from like uh, from like your fast pass or say a message for Mr. Crawl, Mr. Crawl, and they'd hand you your message or a guy. There, there would be an AA behind the counter like this all the time, every few seconds, random. And then when the lightning hit, it would be a real guy. Front, please. Two guys playing Mahjong. And that would all come to life for about 10 minutes and then we'd go away. That is cool. That would have been a lot of fun to see that. Yeah, but without an advocate for the live show. You know, right. we finally figured out, uh, because cause I, cause I told Marty, I said, you know, there should be some live pirates in there. And there are six or eight places. You wouldn't have to move anything. The, the spots exist. And I would do three or four at a time. And they would change. If you're doing position A, you're going to do it different than I'm going to do position A. There's a certain thing that that character does at that place, but you're going to do it your way and add some other stuff. And when we did the Imagineering 35th anniversary party in 1987, we put 33 Imagineering actors in the ride with different things. We re-recorded all the stuff. We put a thing on the guy in the well that said Sid Scheinberg, who, of course, was the head of Universal Studios Tour, and re-recorded the whole thing. We thought everybody would come for dinner. We said, go to Pirates first, ride it. We thought it would be 45 minutes to get everybody out, 1,200 people gone it ran for two hours because people surprised. wouldn't get, get off i think it was an hour and 90 minutes actually or it was 90 minutes actually an hour and a half um and they all said why don't we do the frank wells was there he said why don't we do this why don't we do this and we finally figured out in terms of what it costs to do say the the, the auctioneer that's a six hundred thousand dollar figure and the maintenance and the costume and the this if that was a live actor it would take 13 years before the robot was a better deal Wow. Getting new actors, new shifts, yada, 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 yada. That's incredible. <laughs> it's sad. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, so speaking of Joe Rudy, I know you worked on a project with him, the Adventurers Club, if I'm not mistaken. One of my two or three favorite things ever. And it's, it's hard to talk about because there's no reason on God's little acre that for that not to still be there one because it was so, it was one of the most popular things in guest surveys that disney ever 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 did and it was basically for folks who didn't go it was pleasure island at disney mgm studios or at um, at downtown disney and parenthetically Mar marty came to me one day and says you know we can't build pleasure island next to the walt disney world shopping village i said well that's where it is he says no the name the name you're good at names well, I'm not so magic at coming up with the right name. What I am good at is coming up with a whole lot of possibilities yeah. to pick and choose from. And I help businesses name products, name companies, because let's not try to name it. Let's try to say, what is it? So if, if it's a whatever. So Marty said, take a couple of days and come back to me. 
couldn't get a meeting, couldn't get a meeting, couldn't get a meeting. I had a secretary beat me when he was on his way to the bathroom with his toothbrush. I walked in and said, hey, you're going to get me in this shopping good. And I went over to the mirror in front of him in a big felt pen, jumbo felt pen. I wrote downtown Disney. He said, that's it. Don't you think? I said, yeah. Because it says it's Disney, it's downtown, so maybe it's not a park, so on, so on, so on. So when they came up with Disney Spring, awful, awful. <laughs> so um, Pleasure Island was literally an island that we made by cutting a swath of water on this little peninsula around the end of the shopping village and put six nightclubs and a bunch of restaurants and so on and came up with this backstory of Meriwether Adam Pleasure and had this company that made big sails for the great sailing boats and so all the buildings were old warehouses and manufacturing places and the house, his house was what became the Portobello Yacht Club and now it's something else but it's that high-end restaurant that's right across from the from the I always want to call it the Upper Slowly but it's not it's the no, I think it's Paddlefish now? Yeah. yeah so they took a building that looks like a boat remodeled it so it doesn't look like a boat but it still looks like a boat so it looks like a bad boat now it's you know <laughs> boat springs so I add springs to everything now uh, and I live in Colorado Springs how much fun is that um, so so that building was the pleasure house remember Adam's pleasure house so he kept collecting all these artifacts as a travel around the world so at the other end at the top of hill street at the other end he built a library where he all his collections were and we spent the better part of several years going to swap meets and uh, the, one of our best locations was the rose bowl second sunday of the month swap meet at the at the rose bowl in pasadena it was joe Rody and 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 the, the gang and we would we bought all this stuff some of the stuff that was in the adventures club was stuff uh, that Carolyn Carradine, Carolyn Carradine is Chris Carradine's wife. Chris was the architect for Pleasure Island, and she was going around to to to, to her d dad was I think a big movie producer, and so all her old movie friends and buying old stuff from them. And she's the one that stocked Sid Cowenga's opening day, so that we had literally one of a kind costume pieces and props from movies. And so some of the things she bought were she just buy a box of stuff became artifacts um, at the Adventurers Club. And then one day, one of my favorite things was, we, and we came up with all these characters, finally hired a director, because I knew I couldn't do that, and Streetmosphere, because they were happening at the same time. It was a tough choice to make, but I chose to do Streetmosphere. Roger Cox, who we hired to do Adventurers Club, brilliant man, and I took him over to see Sack Theater. He loved that. Couldn't imagine how that would work. He was a traditional theater and TV guy. And I said, well, I'd always seen... Um, Adventures Club as indoor street theater. So you take the show to the guests and you make them a part of it. And you never ever treat them like they're guests at a resort or at a theme park. In the same way that at Disney MGM Studios, the cast used the crosswalks and the sidewalks. And I ended up, it worked so well, I ended up doing a workshop for the bands and all the cast members who worked in the stores on Hollywood Boulevard. So we didn't talk to guests as though they were guests in a theme park. You folks from uh, around, around here, Hollywood, somewhere in another part of Los Angeles. <laughs> and guests loved that. I did love that. <laughs> and, the, and the thing that really put it over the top is I designed this kid, this character, to sell maps to the stars' homes. And the vice president at the time, whose name I won't tell you, I just saw him again for the first time about 30 years when I was in Florida. Very nice guy. Didn't get it. He said, well, what's this guy going to sell? I said, maps to the stars' homes. Are you going to make fake maps? No, no. These are going to be the maps, the stars' homes that you buy in Sunset Boulevard. And all that. Yeah, but I said, uh, I'll use a different name. So I, I said, listen, Apple, 
<laughs> I don't know where you left your car today, but you walk through those turnstiles, you go through a time warp, and you're in Hollywood in 1947. Right. And there's going to be a kid with a lawn chair. And you know lawn chairs aren't allowed? You can't, it's one of the ten things you can't That's take. That's right. <laughs> so we had, I think, the only lawn chair ever. I just <laughs> lawn chair, plaid pants, Hawaiian shirt, um, a, a, a canvas uh, uh thing around his waist apron with change and he had to go through the class that that the people who sell um like that big mickey mouse ears thing you were eating or you know the ice cream had to go through that class they said do you think your, your actor could cannot change i said yeah i think he could <laughs> he didn't go out first day and the kid that actually did it asif manvi if you look him up on imdb he's a, a busy noted actor he's all over the place he also the cabbie He's coming out, he's got the lawn chair, he's got the big sign, he's got the maps. Ron, and and, and the, the vice president, he says, well, is he going to sell any? I said, if he sells one, Ethel, that's going to be $3 more profit than your entire division has ever made in the history of creative entertainment. That's the point, it's just a show. He's coming out from backstage about three days after we open, and there's a guest in, what do you got there? I got your maps to the stars home, sir. See where Miss Lucille Ball, Tyrone Powers, see where Mr. Victor Matura lives up on the hill, right up there, you can almost see the house from here. <laughs> So how much are they? They're $3. So let me know. No, I don't have a license right here. I don't have a license right here. And he's coming out. He's got to come around the corner. He's going to be in front of the camera shop. I can't do it. I can't do it. The man was insistent. Give me one. Three bucks? Three bucks? He says, you got change. I said, I got change. But uh, here's a five. Just keep it. Because the guy wanted to be in the show. He's, he, he was 20 paces inside the gate. He wanted to be a part of the show. And that show alone. We had a flim-flam man. Barry, my friend Barry, who had a suitcase. Come around, folks. It is plaid suit and he sold toys he had like a wind up um uh king kong with a mickey mouse with a noose around his neck that he was dragging you know wind up boom, boom, boom. right right you know all this anti-disney stuff sharks and so on and it, it just was a, a a great relief and surprise that these very very different things that unexpected because i read something that walt said why do you have this keystone cop he's not security why do you have the guy doing card tricks on the Mark Twain? Why do you have a guy that's just dressed as a sailor on the... He says, you know, this is the world's first thematic park. It's not that big. Other people will come along. They'll probably build bigger ones. They might even build better ones. The way we're going to stay ahead is we're going to surprise people with little stuff like that. And so I said, let's bring back the surprise. And so the streetmosphere, not only do you not expect it, but it could be anywhere. We had guests, and Bruce Laval took me up in the... The, the the roof at Newberry's at Disney and Jim Studios, Holly Boulevard, like a month after it opened, I would go back every three weeks for the first quite a while. And he said, I want you to watch something. And here's one of my casts doing a show or doing a little, you know, something. And there'd be 200 guests there. And there'd be another room. There's another 150. He said, the industrial engineers who they keep track of how many people are in the park, how many people are in line, how many people are doing this and this and this. They have determined that on an hourly basis, Streetmosphere occupies between 1,800 and 2,400 guests. He said, that, my friend, is an e-ticket. That is. As, as long as I'm running this park, Streetmosphere is here to stay. That's valuable to Disney, to have 2,000 guests that aren't looking for a place to, a line to stand in or food to buy or whatever. And, and, and that was not my goal necessarily, but you certain. And we had guests, he told me, going, who had bought like three season passes for the three slowest months of the year, going and saying, can we upgrade to an annual pass? And when they asked why, the two main reasons they gave was Brown Derby and Streetmosphere. Wow. Local, Central Florida, 
residents saying. We want to just, at the drop of a hat, say, let's go to dinner at the Brown Derby and hang out with Streetmosphere for a while. Boy, that makes your life. That's incredible. And, and, and Adventures Club had that same kind of response from guests, that people just wanted to go there, hang out, be there, and inter- interact. And you go to the thing that's there now, and it's not even close. Not yeah, even it close. just occupies the shell that Adventurers Club had. And yet, and yet Disney continues to build outposts of the Society of, of uh, Explorers and Adventurers. Yes, they do. <laughs> Tokyo, Hong Kong, Magic all Kingdom. Over the, all over the planet. <laughs> but we don't have an Adventurers Club somewhere. And there needs to be an SEA World Headquarters I think you could do one at downtown Disney in L.A. and you could do another one at – I mean, if you never went to the Adventures Club but you've been to one of the tra- – uh, one of the um, um, – Sam. What's Trader it called? Sam's. Trader Sam's. Trader, yeah. Thank you very much. Trader Sam's. And there are artifacts in both of those clubs from the Adventures Club. Imagine that but the size of a full-built two-story building with a library and the, and the whole thing. In fact, one of my favorite days we sat with it. I still own a portable typewriter, royal typewriter that my dad gave me for an eighth-grade graduation because I want to be a cub reporter. I want to be H.L. Mencken. And Roger Cox, the director of Adventures Club, had sent off, I think, for two or 300 old photos that he had selected from the Beekman archive. And we sat down and typed out on, on uh, newsprint that we had soaked in tea so it looked old, captions so every every um, picture in the in the place, and I still have that 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 typewriter. But it ju- it just was such a great place, and I miss it like heck. You're not alone. A lot of us do. It was an amazing place. Um, you mentioned Walt's. I know you've met Walt Disney. <laughs> do you want to talk about how you met Walt Disney? Um, my family lived in Pasadena, Southern California, where the Rose Parade was. And my father was in the Naval Reserve, which meant that once a month he had to spend two days, Friday night through Sunday night, um, on a base somewhere. And he applied at one point, he'd been at a base on the other side of L.A., to a little CB unit that was there in Pasadena, CB, a construction battalion, where the guys are going to build stuff and put in an instant bridge and so on. Well, they had taken an old elementary school that existed that was literally at the end of the Rose Parade route, next to Pasadena High School, and they had turned that into a civil defense shelter where they had supplies and, and emergency equipment and so on that they maintained 24 hours seven with the staff. So during earthquakes and other emergencies, flooding, whatever, they had a team of people who could help the local authorities. Well, because they were literally at the end, they took the front yard, put up some bleachers, and they said to the Rose Tournament, we'd like to host every year for the dignitaries, the mayor, the grand marshal, the Rose Queen and her court and others, uh, a little buffet lunch, and then they can go out and sit on the bleachers and watch the rest of the parade. It's quite a, it's a five and a half mile length, five and a half mile length, but it's a two hour parade plus. And um, and they said sure. Well, my mother's one of her many hobbies was she she catered uh, events to the weddings and so on. So she had all these silver bowls and so on, and she could decorate them, so on. So she had been doing that for a few years, and every year in about February, they announced the theme for the following year and the Grand Marshal. It's always some world leader, movie star, Jimmy Stewart, whoever, you name it. And they announced that the following year it would be Walt Disney. So my dad, Commander Wilson, calls the Disney Studios and said, introduce himself and need to find out some things. Does, does Mr. Disney have any dietary restrictions? Does he have any favorite foods? Because we want to, you know. You know, if he wants a bologna sandwich, we'll have it there. If he wants, and they said, well, what do you use? have? This and this and this. Oh, that'll be fine. So he drank coffee, tea. What does he drink? Well, couldn't do any alcohol. And Walt would have to bring his own. 
um, and and then he says, and and then he called back and reintroduced. And he says, he says, you know, the officers here amongst us, we have about a dozen little kids who are huge, wonderful world of Disney fans. Would it would there be time? Would Mr. Disney be available for just a few minutes to meet the kids? Maybe sign some autographs. They said, sure. Gets off the float, gets a cup of coffee. We go into the side room. He says, I need to sit down. Now, it's an old elementary school, linoleum floor that the Navy has polished and buffed and waxed and polished. So it's just slick as you know what. He says, I need a chair. This is 1965, January. I grab a chair. I'm running across the room. Somehow my tennis shoe or whatever caught. The chair f- slipped from my hands slid across the floor, hit Walt Disney in the shin. I was certain, Matthew, that at any moment, some dark, shrouded figures were going to show up <laughs> and escort me to hell, or at least rip my arm off and throw it into the fiery depths of the great beyond yeah. to be joined by other parts of my anatomy to <laughs> be there soon. Um, I went and stood in the corner, with my back to the goings-on. All the kids got their autograph and moved on. It wasn't five minutes, and Walt said, Hey, what are you doing? Turn around. It's me and Walt Disney alone in a room. Now, my birthday is the fourth day of the year. Write it down. I'll this remember. Is, yeah. Right after this, my dad's, actually. So it's easy to remember. That's great. <laughs> this, is, this is January 1st, 1965. So I'm within three days of turning 14. So I'm not a little kid, but I'm, you know, junior high. And I had my spiral-bound sketchbook. And Walt said, I, I said, geez, I'm sorry, Mr. Disney. I really, he said, I'm fine. He lifts his pant leg. I'm fine. See, no bruising. And he was wearing knee socks with this guard. He said, look at that, suspenders for my socks. Ain't that, ain't that neat? And I'm thinking to myself, I'm looking at Walt Disney's hairy leg. <laughs> and, and he says, I'm fine, I'm fine. Sit down. He said, what do you got there? It's my sketchbook. And he opens it up, and he sees all these buildings and train tracks. Said, Ooh, train tracks. Do you like trains? I said, I love trains. He said, do you like the train at Disneyland? I said, I like all the trains at Disneyland. You need more. And so he... Um, and he said, so, so what do you, what, what do you, do you like? What's the deal about trains? I said, well, trains are just an excuse to design little towns. He said, you want to be an architect? Well, I had seen a few years before that, The Wonderful World of Color, where Walt was showing somebody around WED, Walter Elias Disney, WED Enterprises Imagineer. And he said to the girl, this is Claude. He's our head Imagineer on a new attraction. And I yelled at my mom, Imagineer, what's that? My, she said, listen, watch. And it was Claude Coates showing them parts of pirates. And I said, well, I saw that guy Claude on your show. And he said, Claude Coates. I said, okay. And he was an Imagineer. I said, that's right. I said, I want to do that. He poked me. He said, well, then you should be. I told that to Marty Squire. He said, now I can hire you. <laughs> that absolutely sounds like something Walt would say. It is. So I spent those few minutes with Walt. Never got his autograph. Didn't have cell phones, didn't have a pocket camera with me, but I had those so probably 10 minutes. They finally came and said, where is he, right? So later that day, my dad said, what happened to this and this? And I said, and I have my sketchbook and I didn't get his autograph. He says, you'll get it. Didn't know what he meant. It was 1965, January, December of that year, 10 days after his birthday, he died. Right. So he, he was old at the time. I, if you were to ask me at the moment, I wouldn't have said he looked like a dying man. He's an old man. He looks like an old man to me. I'm 14, 13. All right? But he was. Um, and I moved here to Colorado Springs 10 years ago from a loft in a 1970 cotton mill in Oakland, California. 
I had a lot of boxes of stuff that had been in storage that I just shoved in the corner. I said, I'm going to go through every box I've got of stuff. And I found a couple of things. One thing I thought I'd lost, which was the Disneyland map I bought in 1957 when my family first went there. Wow. It has never been sold. It was rolled up. And my first office at Imagineering was Sam McKim's old office. Sam McKim drew that map. And if you go online, you can see where Sam's initials are, which he showed me. Then he signed it. Because he signed that map, I got, and I've got about 20 of the old guys from Claude to Colin Campbell to all these guys who have signed that, signed that map. I thought I'd lost it. I found it. I also found in a box in a big manila envelope that said Disney stuff, I found the page torn out of the official Tournament of Roses parade from that year with, in the dark blue um, ballpoint ink that my dad used, Walt Disney's autograph. And you can feel it because you can feel that my dad had gone and got from Walt and stuck it in this envelope. Wow. And I had it all those years and didn't realize it until 2009. Oh, my gosh. It's <laughs> a long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's my. So when people say, "Did you know Walt?" and I say, "Well, not exactly." (laughs) Kinda. I met him. Um, Bumped into him one time. Yeah, bumped. That's exactly it. Bumped into him one time. Um, Well, like you said to Walt that you want to be an Imagineer. I know that there are a lot of people listening to this conversation who want to be Imagineers, and I would be remiss if I didn't ask you what your advice to them would be. Especially kids who are in high school. I have a lot of high school kids who listen and college students who uh, are interested in being Imagineers. So um, what advice would you offer to get into Walt Disney Imagineering? While we were designing the aforementioned fold-out recruitment brochure, we identified over 300 professional disciplines at Imagineering. That's a lot, yeah. Now, there are obvious things like show lighting. And these are people typically from a background in theater lighting. Everything, everything that's lit at Disney is done from a theatrical point of view. We, you know, as I said earlier, and and Joe Rohde always says, it's it's places we make. Um, But we're also storytellers. And as Tony Baxter will tell you, people say, Tony, how do you, how is it that I go on a ride 15, 20 times and I still see new stuff and I still love it? And Tony says, because when I design a, a ride, I design it for that 20th visit. Genius. Genius. And and with me, I go on my favorite. I mean, I had a lot of meetings down at Disneyland over the years. Disneyland to Imagineering. On a good day, it's less than an hour drive. On a bad day, it can be two hours or it can be you'll never get there drive. Marty asked me one time, how'd your meeting go at Disneyland, blah, blah, blah. He said, when you go down to the park, he said, so when you go down to a, uh, a meeting there, sometimes at Disneyland Hotel, very often it was at the admin building behind the scenes. You pull into your park. You don't literally go into the park. He said, do you ever go into the park? I said, every time. I do not go to Disneyland and not go to Disneyland. That's stupid. <laughs> he said, me too. <laughs> I said, even just to walk around and get an ice cream. He said, do you go on rides? I said, there's one ride I always try to go on. He said, one ride. I said, since I'm a kid. Peter Pan. He said, what do you love about that ride? I said, Marty, you're in a pirate ship and you're flying. <laughs> What's not, What's not the love? What's not And he said, you know, your friend Claude Coast designed it. I said, oh, I know. I've talked to him about it extensively. He said, that was Walt's favorite ride for that reason. Because you are more in that story and of that story than, I mean, I, I can't think of an attraction. where I mean, I, I think the Millennium Falcon thing now is pretty good at that because you're driving. Um. 
But I tell you, and 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 so um, you want to be an Imagineer. I would say probably go to college, maybe not. Get a generalist degree. Get a degree in library science or history of the, you know, the art and scientific history of the Western world. But we also had a woman at, at Imagineering who had a PhD in polymer chemistry. She made fake stretchy things. Yeah. She figured out a new way to do what's called the rubbering process. That's the skin that's put on the face of pirates and presidents and other auto-anatronic right. figures. She, she told me about going, to, we were comparing notes about going to our re- reunions, her college, my high school. And we were both the big hit of our reunion because we're the magic Disney Imagineer. And of course, my friend's like, well, of course you are. You know, goofy, you know. <laughs> and she, she was a PhD in polymer chemistry working at Imagineering. And her friends said, be a generalist if there's something specific you want to do in the area of engineering or graphic design. If you're a visual artist, be able to draw anything. Be able to draw everything. Don't specialize in one thing or another. If you're an architect, be also a conceptual architect that can sit and say, maybe it's like this, maybe it's like this, maybe it's like this. And then, starting as soon as this interview is, you're done watching it, go online to Disney.com, go to the Imagineering page, see what positions are open. Start to do that on at least a monthly, if not a weekly basis, and see what they're, see what di- all the different kinds of jobs are. Which one of those gets closest to what you want to do? Then write to them. Say, hey, I'm a junior in college. Hey, I'm a sophomore in high school. Here's what I like to do. Any advice? They'll help you out. They'll help you out. I've gotten friends hired there. Um, and, and so they're going to need more people all the time. I watched the, some of the videos from D23, and Joe Rohde did a panel discussion with three of their top, top people. I didn't know any of them. No. I left there in 92, 91. So there's not a, there, there, there are a good number. A guy, a kid who was my summer intern, part-time, I shared was a kid named Matt McKim, son of Sam McKim. Matt's now, there's regular, full-time, big-time Imagineer, but started as an intern. So write to him, find out the intern program, and they have Imagineers all over the world. Every theme park has what's called an SQS team, show quality standard, that live and breathe in the park, walking around all day, every day, making sure that everything's up, up to standard quality. And those are those are Imagineers as well. So be a generalist, focus on what you want to focus on, but don't get so focused that that's all you can do. And start to keep tabs on Imagineering and, and write to them and say, here's my interests. You know, my new book, I, I, I talk about, you know, who Imagineers are. They're ordinary people. They put the pants on one leg at a time. <laughs> Some of right. the, you know, one, of, one guy that's an Imagineer puts up this tent every year out in Simi Valley for his community summer Shakespeare festival. He's a technical guy. He's a build, you know, big, big guy, Matt Pretty. Um, one of the Imagineers that lives in your neighborhood is, is the guy you borrow tools from because he has every tool God ever made. That's <laughs> they are. Another guy might be the guy in your church who figured out how to how, how to have the, the angels suspended over the shepherds, keeping watch over their flocks by night in the choir loft. You know, right. they're ordinary everyday folks. Their moms, their dads, you know, they're they're gay, straight, tall, old, young, silly, serious. Christians, Republicans, Democrats, they're everything. I mean, literally, I don't, I don't say that to, you know, be something fanciful. The, the, all of those are there, you know. 
And so be one of them. Be one of them. Don't. It's got the, the next 200 Imagineers got to come from somewhere. There's no reason you can't be one of those. That's great advice. And I hope but if it's you great don't, inspiration. If you don't apply, you know, the best way not to get hired there is to never apply. That's true. That's, That's true. guaranteed. I guarantee that. <laughs> if you don't want to be Imagineer, don't apply. I promise you won't get it. <laughs> Reversal is probably hiring. That's right. <laughs> you know, it's funny. People always say to me, oh, yeah, you, you guys think that Disney's the only one who can buy, build a great theme park. What if, and when um, Islands of Adventure, what about Islands of Adventure? And I said, well, let me tell you who the five main designers on that were. And I began to name all the ex-Imagineers. <laughs> one of the first projects I did when I left Imagineering, and I took a full month off. I left on a Friday. I got four phone calls on Monday. Because at the time, somebody told me there was probably 150 people on the planet who were concept designers, could look at a blank piece of paper and say, oh, let's do this with it. And I apparently was one of those people. Um, and I got a call from Universal. And I said, I'm taking a month off. A month to the day, they called me back. And I went over and they handed me a movie and said, do something with this. I said, is it a street show? Is it a little stage show? Is it a big ride? They said, do one of each. So I did a page treatment for each. It was Beetlejuice. I end up doing the street show. That's fine. I wanted to do the big ride because the ride vehicle was an old pickup truck, and you either sat in the pickup truck or in the um, the old sofa in the back of the pickup truck, That's which cool. would have been would have been a scream. <clears throat> anyway, um, then at one point, worked on several different things there uh, for Japan and so on. And they said, um, "Here's a box of children's books. Do something with them." And I said, "Again, is it a is it a park? Is it a land?" I said, "We don't just come up." So I designed this whole thing. It sat. Now, because of non-disclosure agreements, I couldn't talk about it until six years later, they announced Islands of Adventure. And one of the islands was Seuss Landing. I said, Seuss Landing, that's my deal. <laughs> they had given me all the Dr. Seuss's books. In those inter intervening six years, people would say to me, parties and other places, you know, somebody bump into some of the churches and say, how come nobody's ever done Dr. Seuss? Well, I said, it, it's not an intellectual property that's owned by Disney or Universal or Six Flags. So one of them would have to grab it in the same way that they did Harry Potter. And so somebody would have to do it. And, 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 and it was so much fun when I finally saw what they actually did, how much of the little things that I had said was, for example, um, Seuss, Dr. Geller had a certain palette. He did periwinkle, not purple. He did raspberry, not red. He had a certain very strong yellow. It wasn't Easter egg yellow. It was a very strong yellow. So we had to use his, and I designed this elevated, like, Streetcar, I said, but in order to do that, he doesn't have any straight angles, so we're going to have to be, I don't know how you could hold that up if it was like that. Well, they finally found somebody who made I-beams, but they extruded them so they could make them like this and be just as strong as if it was straight, uh, the way they came on the machine. So sometimes you have to sit back and wait. Mm, yeah, oh, Seuss, that would be fun. You know. So, and there's a lot of crossover. There's a lot of people at Imagineering who are at Universal or who are at Knott's and so on. Because it's a particular type of character that, that you know, thinks that way. They're all ex-professional third graders. That's pretty funny. Yeah, they have to go. Not everybody stays at Disney. They end up going other places, too. Um, and sometimes the other way around as well. So, sure. So you mentioned you have a new book coming out. And I'd love to, you know, for you to share any place, if anyone's interested in learning more about you, where they can go and what books they should buy and whatever else you have going on. We're getting ready to relaunch my McNairWilson.com. It's been dormant for a while. There's a placeholder there now. You can go look for it. But for now, go to Tea with McNair. Tea like the tea bag, the drink, 
twithmcnair.com. It's basically my blog site. I haven't blogged in a while because I'm working on a book. But there you'll find a couple of things, a link to my TED Talk, um, a link to my online store where you can buy my, my, um, my current book, Hatch, Brainstorming Secrets of a Theme Park Designer. And that's my seven agreements of brainstorming. That's the brainstorming that I, system that I started doing at Disney that they noticed that my teams would get to a lot of ideas, big ideas quickly. Said, could you teach that? And I did. Then the uh, Disney um, University guy said, could you teach this to Disney executives at the studio? And I said, geez, I've met Disney executives. I don't know. So Michael Eisner sent out a memo and said, I want all of you and your top people to go through this, 23 divisions. The very first session of this one-hour brainstorming class that I did with um, at Imagineering, we started with new hires and then not so new hires. And I'm not saying that, that this is the, the one and only system for brainstorming. I'm saying if you've got a team that needs to design, invent, create, fix, renew, anything, this will work. And basically what it is is seven agreements or rules for playing well with each other to do that. And whether you've got an hour to come up with something or a year, it'll, it'll all work. And when you first read it, you say, well, it's kind of kind of simplistic. Well, it should be easy for anybody to do. The very first session of teaching the seven agreements at Disney Studios at, uh, at the studio in Burbank, these guys came out and said, well, we like your thing. We want you to teach our teams, but we're not creative. And I said, what does that even mean? Well, I can't draw a straight line. I said, nobody can. That's why they sell rulers and T-squares <laughs> and triangles at art supply stores, and they sell them to artists. Because right. guess what? I mean, I went to the Minneapolis College of Art and Design on a scholarship, Matthew. Never once in the application or opening day or first day of class, I said, by the way, you can draw a straight line, can't you? <laughs> no, that's why I keep all of these around, just to, you know, to, draw, to draw straight lines, you know, because nobody can. So what I realized as I talked to them was what they were saying is they weren't artistic. Well, that's such a narrow, narrow view of what being creative is. So I spent a year unpacking what is creativity, what does it mean, interviewed everybody I knew, certainly everybody I mentioned, but other people, including, and there's a chapter on this fellow in my new book, uh, and, and it became my TED Talk, the, the um, um, Recapturing Your Creative Spirit, where I identified four habits that all what I call actively creative people, purposely, on purpose, creative people do. And it's simple stuff like take risks. It's none of them artistic things. It's things that we all do. Take a shortcut. So the new book is based on the TED Talk, based on that. And in the writing of the new book, um, discovered a fifth habit. Uh, oh, and the person that I say is the most creative, non-artistic person I know is my dad. At his funeral, five people spoke. Four of them weren't me. And they all, without consulting with each other, talked about his creativity. Wow. And friends of mine said, I knew your dad. He wasn't a bit artistic. I said, nobody used that word all day long. He talked about his creativity. He wasn't, he wasn't artistic. Um, so the new book is to help everybody who wants to, to understand how creative they really are. The, the, the curious thing about it is as I, as I was writing Hatch, I'll hold it upside down, and this will <laughs> mean something to you when the new book comes out. I went back and I took all the things out that were me making the case that you're creative, you can do this. No, here's a simple process, anybody can do it. Took those out, took the, from the very first reviews that appeared on Amazon, people said, not only is the brainstorming thing is great, I'm going to use it, yeah, yeah, yeah. But he also helps you understand that you are creative. And I'm saying, no, no, that's the next book. So I realized I couldn't help myself. That's, that's really what I'm up to, is to help every individual find, access, and use 
their own creative spirit. Because the evidence is children by age three, I mean, every place they've gone into the fourth world, into the, the bush, children by age three are fully creatively expressed. They sing, they dance, they make up stories, they play games, they draw pictures. They all do that. In my workshops, when I give everybody blank pieces of paper, photocopy paper, and cheap felt pens to take notes on, put your iPads, your smartphones, your laptops away. Put them away. If you don't, I will come um, and, and, and put your ballpoint pen away. And I give everybody cheap. This is how you'll take notes the rest of today or the rest of this week, whatever, however long the class is. And people will come up and say, I haven't done this in years. You know, no little kid looks up from his art supplies and says, Mom, stop me. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just a kid. <laughs> But you give these to grown and say, well, I can't. Well, figure it out. Figure it out. And so the book is to help them do that. And it's the second book in what I think is going to be a three or four book um, trilogy on creativity. That's awesome. But do we know when the first one's coming out? You're still, do you have a... Well, this is... This, well, I know this the is, brainstorming this, out. Yeah, hatches this out. Is, this is book one. And what will happen in the next printing, which we're about to go into, is there'll be a book, a number one that'll appear here. And I came up with this, so this will be on all the books, different color scheme. So the the new book is book two, and I haven't announced the name yet. Very soon, so they should follow me on Facebook, see McNair Wilson or McNair Wilson or on, on uh, Twitter, McNair Wilson, um, to, to get the announcement of the pre-sale, and that's when we'll announce the name of the book. And that's that's coming up sooner than than you could imagine. So. Well, I've read book one. So I will have book two up on up on my list for the next one. I'll go make sure to to keep in mind when it goes on a pre order to get it. Um, and I'll I'll include all the links in the podcast notes to your your blog at Tea with McNair and your your social profiles. Thank you. So and if you want, when the new book comes out in a few months, couple months, whatever it is, um, let's come back and talk about it. Yeah, so. absolutely. That'd be amazing. Um, well, it's been great talking about your history. Walt Disney Imagineering and a little bit about your first book and uh, yeah let's definitely have you back on the show again appreciate you taking the time thank you so much Matt (laughs) have a magical day oh thank you you too that we close out episode 57 of the imagineer podcast i want to give a special thank you once again to mcnair for coming onto the show and talking with us about some of the stories from working at walt disney imagineering working with claude coates and marty sklar and even having the chance to meet walt disney for those of you listening i want to know what your favorite mcnair wilson attraction or streetmosphere or area was. You can send me your feedback in so many different ways, either on Facebook or Instagram. You can send me a direct or a public message at Imagineer Podcast. You can reach out to me on Twitter at Imagineer News. You can also, of course, send me an email at ImagineerPodcast at gmail.com, or you can leave a voicemail to hear your voice on a future episode of Imagineer Podcast by calling 516 406 8376. And be sure to join our Imagination, which is our Facebook group community, where you can continue this conversation about this particular episode or anything related to all things Disney, which you can find at facebook.com slash groups slash Imagineer podcast, or of course can also go to facebook.com slash Imagineer podcast and take a look at the groups tab, which will take you over to that group. You can also 
If you haven't done so already, subscribe to Imagineer Podcast in any podcast app, any one of your favorites, whether that be iTunes or Spotify, Google Podcasts, Podbean, or Stitcher. And if you haven't yet rated and reviewed the show, it really does so much to help our podcast out in iTunes. I want to read just a couple of more uh, reviews that came in. One comes from SidPort98, who says, love, love, love this podcast. This has to be my favorite podcast I've ever listened to. I love all things Disney, especially when it comes to the facts about the parks and rides. Whenever I visit Disney World, I always feel like I know almost all the facts I could know since I do tours. Plus, I'm always digging to find more and more facts, but every time I listen to a podcast, I always learn something completely new, and I love it. Thank you for making an amazing podcast. Well, Sidport98, thank you so much for that amazing review. Uh, another review from SMTHCH. C-H-S-T-Y, I don't know how to pronounce that, but says perfection. If you're missing Disney or just need some information for a trip, this is the podcast for you. It's filled with facts and helpful information. It doesn't compare to other podcasts. Do yourself a favor and listen. Thank you so very much. That was such a kind review. And one more review coming in from Ruhu2. He says, love this podcast so much. Thank you so much for this podcast. A couple months ago, my friends and I went to Disneyland for the first time. I went as a kid, but they didn't fully appreciate the grandeur of Disney. I had prepared for the trip by learning a lot of interesting facts about the rides and about the park, but of course I felt the Disney blues. I'm glad I did though, because it led me to your podcast. Now I'm an avid Disney fan and a subscriber to your show. I love the way the show is set up, and I especially love the group episodes like the Pixar episode. Thanks for bringing Disney back to me. And remember, if you can dream it, you could do it. Ruhu too? That's definitely true. <laughs> Just to continue with the rhyme. Um, and again, I, there were so many reviews that came in, but don't want to uh, take too much time doing so. I'll be sure to review more or re- read more of the reviews, I should say, in future episodes of Imagineer Podcast. But uh, really appreciate those of you who have rated and reviewed the show. Uh, if you want to take your love of Imagineer Podcast, one step further, be sure to look into the Imagineer Society, which you can learn more about by going to patreon.com slash Podcast. In short, you help to support the show and in return get some exclusive benefits and perks, including early access to podcast episodes, bonus podcast episodes, monthly video calls with me, and so much more. So you can learn more about that by going to patreon.com slash Podcast, And be sure to check out our sponsors, academytravel.com, and our friends over at The Kingdom Insider at thekingdominsider.com. Most importantly, if you love the show, the best thing you could do for us is to share your favorite episode, whether it be this episode or the podcast as a whole, or your favorite post on social media, or you can tag us there as well. But every single share does so much. Uh, And if you do anything else, that is probably the number one thing that helps Imagineer Podcast to continue to grow. As always, my friends, I hope you are doing everything you possibly can to create a better and a happier life for yourself to go after your dreams no matter what they are. Just take that first step today. The hardest thing to do is to start. I was chatting about that with McNair, and he, of course, mentioned Guy Kawasaki. He says that the hardest thing to do is to get started. So take that first step. Get started today towards your dream. And remember, as always, that quote from Horizons. If you can dream it, you could do it. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you again in a future episode of the Imagineer Podcast.
makes a puppet. It is I, Shelby Mayer, Mayor of Hollywood, producer par excellence, and benevolent king of Hollywood. Right. Yeah. 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 Producing my brand new film, Celebrate You. Yeah. And here, my entire film, and I'm going to see here today, is right. Yeah. Good morning, Hollywood. My name is Milton Machismo. Right. It is Italian. It means nacho cheese. Quite. And I would like to say hello to my mom who's out there. Hello, mom. I love you very much. Right. I'm not done yet, sir. Okay. I'd also like to say hello to my dad who's right next to my mom. Right. He looks just like me. Fascinating. I'm not done yet, sir. I'd also like to say hello to my twin sister, Velveeta. Remember, uh, Velveeta, you can come home whenever you do. It's not that bad. As my film crew, there's something very important you must do right here, right now. And what is that, sir? Get off my truck. You got it, sir. As I was saying, I'm doing a brand new film called Celebrate You. All about celebrating you on your birthday. Celebrating you on your anniversary. And celebrating you for having the courage to wear mouse ears in the daytime. That's <laughs> notion, notion. And as such, all of you will be in the opening shot of my film with the opening line, which is right there on the card. Bam! And that line Bam. is Hollywood. Yeah, we come. Let's all try that at the count of three. One, two, three. Ladies and gentlemen, what is it, sir? The correct line reading is Hollywood. Yeah, we come. Got it. Let's try it again. One, 